I would invite you to turn with me to today's text. It is Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. We're looking at the narrative involving Peter and Cornelius and involving, most importantly, God Almighty. We can't leave him out. We've seen how he has been working and preparing this encounter. He's given visions to Cornelius and to Peter. He has commanded Cornelius to send for Peter and then commands Peter to go to Caesarea uh, so that Cornelius and his household might hear the word of the Lord and be brought to saving faith in Christ. And that's about all the recap I have time to give today if you're interested. Uh, The previous couple sermons on Acts 10 are on our website. But I'll end with this summary statement. That in Acts 10, we are seeing that God Almighty is making clear that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but for all people. And there's my jumping off point. If the gospel is not only for the Jews, but for all people, then what is the gospel? Such a big deal is being made. And if it's for all people, well, what is it? Well, Peter is going to show us in this text. He's going to open his mouth and and speak. And I, I think common sense informs us that what Luke has recorded here in verses 34 through 43, this is not a transcript of the sermon. This is not Peter's manuscript, because if that was the case, he'd stand up and preach for a minute and 30 seconds. Maybe sometimes you wish that you could hear someone preach for a minute and 30 seconds. I, I don't believe that after all this trouble in getting everyone together that Peter stood up and preached for a minute 30. I think what we're given here is a summary. We're given bullet points of the important topics that were communicated to the people. These essential topics that make up the gospel, and we're going to see those in a moment. But I want to get back to the question of what is the gospel, and I want to give you some personal application here. Okay, The word gospel, I think most all of us know this, means good news. Well, when we think of news, news is made up of content and information. You can open the newspaper and read content and information. You can turn on your TV to watch the news and receive content and information. Well, if the gospel is good news, then what content and information is included in it and what is excluded? Well, here's some application for us right off the bat. And this is an easy mistake I think we can make in our context specifically here in Northeast Mississippi. We may believe we have shared the gospel when in fact we haven't. And I'm going to make sense of this for you. We may say something right and good and true and think, I've shared the gospel. For example, we might say to someone, Jesus loves you. And we think we've shared the gospel. It's a true statement, it's a good statement, but that's not the gospel. We may build a house with Habitat for Humanity or work the Lighthouse Toy Store and think, my actions have declared the gospel. 
They haven't. I want to give you a quote from Dr. R.C. Sproul. He gives us some clarifying application here. He writes, We hear people all the time saying, I am committed to sharing the gospel. Yet if we look at the content of what it is they share, it is not the gospel at all. I may share with a neighbor that Jesus changed my life. And that is a wonderful testimony, but it is not the gospel. I can say to my friends, I've got good news for you. God loves you. And that is good news, but it's not the gospel. Dr. Sproul continues, In New Testament categories, the gospel is understood in terms of definite content. And that content is not about me. And it's not about you. The content of the gospel focuses attention on the person and work of Jesus. Who he is and what he has done. And added on is how we can receive the benefits of his ministry by faith. I'm going to go back over that. I want to come through this. It's so important. He's saying the gospel is not telling your neighbor that Jesus changed your life. We don't want to confuse testimony with evangelism. It's not simply saying God loves you. That is good news, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news about the Lord Jesus. Who He is, what He has done, and how we receive the benefits Of his work. I hope that makes sense. It's not about us. It's not about who we are. It's not about what we have done. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done and how we, by faith, trust in who he is and what he has done and thereby receive the benefits of his work. Hopefully this will be clear as we go through. Peter's going to provide the bullet points for us, but before we look at them, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we're reminded that you speak through words. There's a reason that we have a book in front of us. You speak and communicate. You've inscripturated your word to us. And Father, we're opening it now and looking at it, and we ask you to work as you have in the past, and would you work in our hearts? Would you work through uh, this lowly, humble preacher? In Jesus' name, amen. I'll begin in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, we're looking at this content of the gospel, and the first thing that we see is that Peter opens his mouth. Peter speaks. We're reminded here that the gospel is spoken. There's this quote I've heard most of my life. It floats around Christian circles. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's often attributed wrongly to St. Francis of Assisi. And it's, uh, and, I, and I say wrongly attributed because none of his biographers cite it. It's found in none of his writings. And actually, when you look at his writings, the, thing that, the things that he writes and the way that he preached is, would not be in agreement with the statement. But the people often say, oh, you remember St. Francis of Assisi. He said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. You heard that before. It's a quote that implies that the gospel can be preached without speaking. That your actions alone, unaccompanied by any words, can preach the gospel. That's not the case. Of course, we, we don't want our actions to contradict our words. We don't want to be hypocrites. James tells us in his letter that faith without works is dead. All of that is true, but the gospel is verbal. I read a quote from Dr. Dwayne Lifton, who is the former president of Wheaton College, and he makes this statement. He says, It's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words because the gospel is inherently verbal and preaching is inherently verbal behavior. You can't simply rely on your actions to communicate the gospel. Paul gets after this in Romans 10. He gives that great statement, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he continues and says, but how will they call on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The gospel is to be spoken. And I know there there are times maybe for the sake of awkwardness or you just don't have the energy when, whether it's in friend circles or at work where you you think, you know, it's just going to be easier if I don't say anything. And I just want to live faithfully and I want to do what I'm called to do and hopefully people will see my actions and they will get the point. That's not enough, though we have to speak. So the gospel is spoken. The next thing we see is the gospel is for everyone. He makes this statement in verse 
34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now in that verse, there's a temptation, especially for we Presbyterians who can get hung up on a single word and just write and expound on it for all eternity. And there's a temptation here to just run down a dozen rabbit trails, and I know that is true because there are probably four more pages of this that got cut and fell to the floor of my office. You read that verse, and you'll see someone point out like, oh, well, this is undercutting the doctrine of election. And then you feel like you have to come in and just defend the doctrine of election. Or that Peter here is contradicting what the rest of Scripture says, that your works and what you do justify you. And so you have to come in and defend justification by faith alone. Well, I'm not going to go down those trails. And I'm not going to because of the context of this verse. Remember the context of of this narrative. We're talking about people. We're talking about nations. Those who were separated from God. The Gentiles, my ancestors, your ancestors, separated from God, viewed by the Jews as unclean. A Jew simply going into a Gentile's house would become ceremonially ceremonially unclean. So you have this division, and yet the wall between Jew and Gentile is coming down. And Peter makes that statement in verse 28. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom. So that is the context of these verses. And with that in mind, what does it mean that God shows no partiality? It means that he is not showing favoritism based on a person's ethnicity or nationality. He does not prefer some ethnic groups over others. He is not going to discriminate based on what nation you are a citizen of. It's not the reason you're accepted. His gospel is for all people. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, Over time, and you can look back at biblical history and see that people have misunderstood their acceptance with God. The reason why they're accepted. You can think back to the year 586, right before the Babylonians come down and destroy Jerusalem, kill some inhabitants, and then haul the rest off into captivity. And uh, there was this idea during that time by the Jews in Jerusalem, like, hey, we're safe. Because we're in the holy city. We don't have to fear the Babylonians. We aren't listening to Jeremiah because we are in this city. And as long as we're on base, you cannot touch us. They had a misplaced confidence. They were not, in fact, safe. You see a similar thing with the Pharisees during the time of Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees believed that they were safe and accepted. Why? Because they were the offspring of Abraham. Nothing else mattered, just their lineage was what gave them acceptance. But Jesus calls them sons of who? The devil. 
There's a misunderstanding of acceptance. But Peter says, God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, on one hand, I just gave the example of Jews maybe thinking they're right because they're children of Abraham, they live in Jerusalem. Well, conversely, there was this belief that the Lord would never accept the Gentiles, even if they were doing good things. He would never accept them purely because of who they were. There's an example of this. Think about how angry Jonah gets. Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, and he preaches, and it's not, he's not preaching with the best intentions. And yet the people of Nineveh hear his word, repent, and God relents from the disaster he was going to bring upon them. And Jonah gets furious. He gets furious that these unbelieving Gentiles have done a spiritually good thing and the Lord responds to them. This was a common view on on the part of the Jews in this day. This view that you could worship God purely and you could pursue holiness and you could live a godly, blameless life and yet the Lord would still be prejudiced against you because you were not one of the chosen people. You were an unclean Gentile. You belonged to the wrong nation. And Peter is saying, truly I understand that this is not the case. God shows no partiality. Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a devout man. He feared God. He gave alms generously. He prayed continually. And what happens? The Lord heard his prayers and sent an angel and instructed Peter to come and to bring the light of the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And we're reminded that if someone has repented and believed on Christ... Our God is not going to keep them out of heaven because they don't belong to the right people group. Right? We're, we're reminded of that here. Our God shows no partiality, that the gospel is for everyone. Well, the next thing we see is that the gospel is good news of peace. We see this in verse 36. We all want peace, don't we? What's the stereotypical answer given in beauty pageants that I want world peace we all want peace we want peace in our homes we want peace for our country uh, maybe your mind is prone to, to race and you uh, wish you had peace of mind some of you are getting worn down at work and you wish you could have some peace added into your work schedule Maybe you lose someone close to you, a friend or family member, and you struggle to feel at peace in their absence. While all of those needs are important, we're reminded that our greatest need of peace, what is it? The greatest peace we need is with God. And the gospel begins by proclaiming the message that you are not at peace with God. That's where it starts. Paul writes, speaking to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says at the beginning of chapter 2, 
You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked. You're following the prince, uh, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power in the air, living for the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The gospel begins by understanding that is who we were, that is who we are, following the course of this world, living for the passions of the flesh, chasing sinful desires, children of wrath. We're given a picture of this hostility that we naturally have towards our God. You think of the Incarnation. A baby is born and the first response from the governing authorities is to try to kill him. And just so they don't miss him, they kill every boy under the age of, was it two, in the nation. And then as he grows older and carries out his ministry and his time of earthly ministry is coming to a close... What do we human beings do? We kill him. We will choose a murderer. We chose a murderer, Barabbas, to go free so that the Son of God would die. That's a picture of the enmity that we naturally have against our Lord. We need peace with God. And then we're told the source of that peace in verse 36 preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's the source of this peace. We're uh, told that he's the one baptized by John. You ever thought, why? There aren't many things that make it in all four Gospels. And the baptism of Jesus is one of those things. And there's a lot that could be said there, but I think here the most important thing to point out is that it's included in all four Gospels and it's included here because it's pointing to who Jesus is. Remember, the Gospel is good news about who Jesus is and what He has done and how we become benefits, or we, we receive the benefits of what He's done. Well, who is He? We're told at His baptism, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit comes down and, and like a dove and rests upon Him. And then there's the voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see who He is. He's the Son of God. He's the one we should listen to. He's the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit so that He might do the task set before Him. He's the one who went around doing good and demonstrating His power over Satan and over the forces of darkness. There's this, all of, I was going to say there's a wonderful line from Psalm 23. The whole, all of Psalm 23 is wonderful. Uh, Near the end there's this line, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That image of goodness and mercy following you, it's it's beautiful. Think about Jesus. Goodness followed him. Everywhere he went, things got better. Maybe you know someone and maybe it's in a serious way or maybe it's in just kind of a more 
joking, funny way, but someone who just everything they touch, they break. Just kind of a natural klutz. And if they walk into a room, they're going to break something. If they go, go here, something's going to go wrong. That's just kind of what, what fits them and what you see. Well, everywhere Jesus goes, things get better. He goes and heals people. He does good. And it's the same with his, his servants. You think of Peter. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at Peter traveling around. He goes to Lydda and heals a paralytic, and everyone is celebrating. Then he gets called to Joppa, and he goes to Joppa and uh, raises Tabitha from the dead. And now he's in Caesarea preaching to this household of people. Everywhere he goes, things get better. You know, it's not like everywhere the servants of Jesus go, things get dark and things get torn up and... Uh, disease breaks out. That's not, it's completely the opposite. They brought life. They brought healing. They brought restoration. And they did so because that's who our God is. It's who Jesus Christ is. Then from there we have to continue Verse 39b, the second half of verse 39, we come to the crux of the gospel, pun intended. Don't we? They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This is probably the most well-known event in all human history. I think it'd be harder to find a more well-known event than the crucifixion of Jesus. But my question is, why would Peter word it this way? Why would he not say they crucified Jesus by nailing him to a cross? That seems to be clearer. Why use this language of hanging on a tree? Because it's going to communicate something far deeper than simply saying Jesus died on a cross. Because Jesus did not simply die and rise to show us that he could. There was a purpose to his death. And the words hanging on a tree show us that purpose. If you trace back these words, you'll wind up in Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 is talking about the death penalty. It's talking about someone who has committed a crime worthy of death and they're put to death and the specific execution method is hanging. And there's this line in Deuteronomy 21 and it says this, a hanged man is cursed by God. Okay, that's the source of this. A hanged man is cursed by God. And that verse is in Peter's mind here. Jesus Christ was cursed by God because he was put to death by hanging on a tree. That's what Peter's communicating. Well, why? Why is Jesus cursed by God? He was God's son. The father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He went around doing good and brought light and life and health wherever he went. He healed those who were, opposed, who were oppressed by the devil. He committed no sin. He never succumbed to temptation. He never entertained a wicked thought or spoke a sinful word. 
Why was he cursed by God? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us in Galatians 3.13. Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See what Paul is saying. We are the cursed ones. And we're cursed because we've broken God's law. You can look back at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27. Moses is giving the law to the people a second time before they go into the land of Canaan. And after the law, he lays out blessings and curses. You know, in the same way with children, you can lay before them, if, if you do this, you will get a blessing. This good thing will happen. And if you do not do this, if you disobey, there will be punishment for your disobedience. It's the same way in Deuteronomy. The law is restated. Blessings and curses are given. And we read this in Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Saying, if you do not keep this law, you will be cursed. So when we think about the law of God, how are you doing at keeping every word of it? Every part of it? Every jot and tittle of the law of God? If you're like me and you've broken it, then you find yourself in the position of being cursed by God. what does Paul say? Christ redeemed us from that curse. He purchased our freedom. And he did so by becoming a curse for us. He took our place as our substitute. And he was a curse for us. And when we trust in his work by faith, we will never be cursed ourselves. That's how peace with God is purchased. We talked a second ago about about peace with God. That comes through the blood of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sins. You've heard of a judge expunging someone's record, maybe a, a juvenile who does something stupid before they're 18 and... The judge says, well, if you do this and that, then I'll expunge your record so that by the time you turn 18, you'll have a clean record. What we see here is that our record has been wiped clean. The record of our law-breaking, our sin, has been wiped clean. And now the penalty we deserved has been removed because it was nailed to the cross. The one who hung on the tree became the curse of God so that we might be washed, forgiven, and made new. But the good news isn't only that Jesus died. It's also that he rose from the grave. We see this in verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We see that without the resurrection, you do not have the gospel. And it's as simple as that. 
The resurrection is the oxygen of the gospel. You take it away, the gospel ceases to exist. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. If he hasn't been raised, your faith is pointless. And if he hasn't been raised, not only is your faith pointless, but you are still in your sins. You're still cursed by God. That record is still hanging over your head, haunting you. Also, if you don't have the resurrection, all of Jesus' claims he makes about himself are wrong. It means that he misled everyone. It also would undercut the claim in Scripture that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Without the resurrection, the gospel has no power. And without the resurrection, you and I have no hope of any life beyond the grave. Without the resurrection, we close our eyes in death and enter eternal nothingness. But Peter says, Christ has been raised from the dead. And I saw him. Many of us saw him, not everyone. But over 500 witnesses can testify to the truth that Christ rose He'll write later in one of his letters, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we were eyewitnesses of a real body, not some ethereal disembodied spirit. You know in the movies, whenever someone has died and then they come back, they're always the see-through blue person, you know? They'll come back to share some wisdom or help in a time of need. And they're this see-through blue person. They aren't real. It's just a disembodied spirit. And yet, Peter says, I ate with him. He was a real body that ate real food. And I sat down and shared a meal with him. Take comfort. In his resurrection. Two more things to briefly look at and then we're finished. The first of the last two is that the risen Lord is the judge. We see this in the second half of verse 42. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Can we? Maybe I'm just betraying my heart, but... I, I think we'd like, we'd like to view Christ as Savior. We'd like to view Him as Lord. But that title as judge makes us uneasy. I think if we're sharing the gospel with someone, if we're talking to someone about Jesus, His being the judge, the one appointed by the Father who... There's been a day fixed when he will judge the world. That's possibly your least favorite part of the gospel to share. Our human natures buck against it because we want to be our own judge. But this is still good news. The good news does not end here. I can't remember how long ago it was. It may have been seven, eight, nine weeks in in a sermon. uh, We were looking at Christ as judge and made the statement that because of the work of Jesus, because of our faith in him, 
the judge leaves his bench and comes down and stands beside the Christian and represents them as their defense counsel. You think of, I know there was a big trial that ended this past week. Think if you were on trial and the judge got up, walked down, stood beside you and said, I'm going to represent you. I'm going to be your advocate. I'm going to be your friend. What a comforting thing that is. We're reminded when we trust in Jesus, when we become united to him by faith, he's our judge, but he's also our advocate. But there's a warning here. A warning for those who remain stubborn and hard-hearted and not believed on him. There's a warning that for them, he remains only judge and that the record of their guilt has not been removed. Last thing. Remember at the beginning, we're talking about the content of the gospel. Dr. Sproul quote that the gospel is mainly about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and then added to the very end. We've looked at who Jesus is, what he's done, and then added on is how we can receive the benefits of his ministry. How do we receive the benefits of his ministry? How does that happen? Verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We receive the benefits of the ministry of Christ by believing in him, by putting our trust in him and his alone, in him alone, not putting our trust in who we are, not putting our trust in what we've done, not putting our trust in what we're striving to do right now, but believing in him. John Stone was the longtime campus minister at UT Knoxville with RUF, and he told a story about a conversation he had with one of his students. This student had, had just come to faith in Christ for the first time. They made a profession of faith, and this kid is just raring and ready to go. And he says to John Stone, he's like, okay, now what do I do? And John says that he's to repent and believe. And he's like, okay, I've done that. Now what do I do? I'm in. Tell me. Give me the list. What do I do now? And John was thankful for the opportunity to go back and revisit this essential content of the gospel. Notice that Peter does not end this sermon by telling Cornelius and his household what they could go and do. He tells them to believe. He's calling them to faith alone in Christ. And in our belief and resting on Him, everything else is going to follow. So have you believed on Him? Are you trusting in who he is and what he has done? And are you resting on him alone for salvation? Let's pray. Father God, for the picture we are given of your son and his work on our behalf, we are eternally grateful. Father, would we see more and more every day, every year of our life, more and more of the Lord Jesus? Would we look to him 
on all days, the good days and the bad, the days of joy, the days of sorrow, would we look to Jesus as our hope in life and in death and every time in between? Would we look to him and find our confidence? Would we look to him and his work and know we are accepted? Would we look at his resurrection and his ruling and governing and judging all things and knowing that we are safely kept within his hands because of his great love for us? Father, would that comfort produce in us joyful little instruments that you can use to glorify your name and comfort a dark and hurting world? In Jesus' name. Amen.